is Law for Community Workers On The Go, a podcast for community and health workers. In today's episode, you will find out about Privacy Awareness Week, what credit history is, and the sometimes complicated world of credit reporting. All the links mentioned in today's episode are in the description below, so check them out. And if you've never gotten a free credit report, make sure you do. You have the right to find out what's in your credit report and correct any wrong information. My name's Joshua Scotland. I'm a solicitor in the Community Legal Education Branch at Legal Aid New South Wales. I'd like to start off by acknowledging that we're on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to Elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge any of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who may be listening. Could I just ask both of you to introduce yourselves uh, by saying your name, where you work and what your role is? My name is Sophie Higgins. I'm a director in the Dispute Resolution Branch at the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner. My name's Justin Lodge. I'm an Assistant Director in Dispute Resolution at the uh, Office of the Australian Information Commissioner. Wonderful. And we are doing this episode to celebrate Privacy Awareness Week. Can both of you tell me one reason why it's important to protect your personal information and one tip that you have uh, to keep your personal information secure? Uh, so I, I think it's it's really important to protect your personal information because we've seen a lot of technological change over the last decade or more, um, which has created, I guess, some threats towards uh, for identity fraud and, and other things like that. Um, you know, a lot of people have an online presence these days, uh, banking, all kinds of different services are provided online. Um, so it's, it's just really important to ensure that um, you protect your personal information for, to ensure that uh, there's not any problems in terms of, you know, identity fraud. Um, I think in terms of a, did you want a tip? Yeah, I'd love a tip. So... My tip is probably just to have a really long, complex password. I often use long and complex passwords and I prefer... So I used to be the kind of person who would use a dog's name or a cat's name, but now I'm more into the long the long password with lots of different um, numbers and letters and um, apostrophes, question marks, that kind of thing. And have so. you changed the way you name your pets so that you can continue <laughs> <laughs> with your philosophy? I think that would be a good idea, but it would kind of make my pet's name unpronounceable. <laughs> yeah. So I've avoided that. Yeah, perfect. And Sophie? Uh, well, I agree with Justin about the importance of security in terms of ID theft. The Privacy Act goes to some other things which I think are really important and that enable to people to have control and choice around the information that belongs to us. So every day we um, give our information to um, all different people, doctors, um, shops, um, banks, the government, and we expect them to be transparent about um, the way that they handle that information. So tell us what they're going to do with it. And we expect them to handle accurate information and to give us an opportunity to correct things so that they don't make poor decisions. So I think those aspects of privacy are also really important in addition to security aspects. So just maintaining that element of control and choice and understanding that the information is about an individual and intimate to the individual. In terms of an example, when I go to the shops, 
I'm often asked for my name, my phone number and my email address and sometimes more information about me. And I'm one of those very wary shoppers that ask why do you need that information and what are you going to use it for? And if I'm satisfied with the reason and what they're going to do, then I might give over my information if I'm going to get some benefits. Oh, that's great. Thank you both. And can I ask you to explain what Privacy Awareness Week is? It happens from Sunday the 12th of May to Saturday the 18th of May this year. It happens every year in May across the Asia Pacific and it highlights the importance of privacy to people's daily life. This year our message is don't be in the dark and we're reaching out to share our knowledge and how to manage privacy better. And when you say don't be in the dark, what does that mean? So one of the things things that the Privacy Act tries to do is to create transparency around people's personal information. So for example, Australian Privacy Principle 12 is, a, is about how people can get access to their personal information. So that don't be in the dark, one aspect of that would be just that transparency aspect and how you can get access to personal information that's held by organisations and Commonwealth agencies. It's a good opportunity each year for individuals to be reminded of their privacy rights and understand more about how businesses and government agencies handle their information and to take steps to be as in control as possible of decisions and choices made about their information. And for businesses, it's a good opportunity to review their privacy practices and compliance frameworks and ensure that they are adopting good privacy practice. Some wise person said, I don't ask me who, that knowledge is power. And I think that's really applicable when it comes to Privacy Awareness Week, because we really want individuals to understand that they do have these rights under the Privacy Act. And we we want them to understand that they can access their free credit report and those kind of things. Each day of Privacy Awareness Week, we'll be shining a light on five privacy priorities. So there'll be data breaches, online privacy, credit reporting, which is today, health information and your data. And we'll also be providing updates and information about privacy and how to promote privacy um, through our social media feeds and on our website. Excellent. And we can put the links to your social media on the description of our podcast. You both work at the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner. Can you explain what the role of your office is? Yes, the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, or the OAIC, as we call ourselves, um, has regulatory oversight of the Privacy Act and the Freedom of Information Act. We have a broad range of functions under that legislation. We handle complaints, we accept notifiable data breach notifications, we have a free inquiries line, We provide advice to stakeholders and government, particularly about changes to the law that might impact privacy. And we also undertake investigations and have enforcement and compliance powers um, in cases uh, where there's been an interference with an individual's privacy. And when you say notifiable data breaches, what does that mean? Last year, there was a new notifiable data breaches scheme that was introduced under the Privacy Act for businesses that are covered by the Privacy Act and have security obligations under the Privacy Act. They're required to notify the Australian Information Commissioner where there's an eligible data breach and also in most circumstances to notify the affected individuals. So eligible data breaches when the breach can result in serious harm to affected individuals. 
and in those in in those cases those individuals would need to be notified so if i had given my information to a business and somebody hacked into that business and that information that i'd given them was then in the public domain is it just because my information's out there that i'm at risk of serious harm when when does that happen when does it become a risk of serious harm that i would need to be told that my data has been breached? Well, the legislation doesn't define when that threshold is met, but there's factors, relevant factors include whether it's a risk of serious financial harm, say there's been a data breach involving credit card details, say there's been a data breach involving your your PIN numbers or access codes to your accounts, Um, that might be where there's been a breach that's at risk of serious harm. It might also be psychological, emotional harm, so there might be a data breach involving personal information of um, someone who's been involved in a domestic violence situation. There's a range of situations where you might reach that threshold. This podcast is for community workers and, and that could be a, a range of people. be somebody who's working as a social worker. It could be somebody who's working with recently arrived migrants. Uh, I guess I'm really interested in, in what role you think community workers could play in assisting your organisation or to put it another way, why is it important for community workers to know about the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner? So with Privacy Awareness Week and that don't be in the dark message, one thing that we're really trying to do is get the message out to uh, community workers and to, to other stakeholders just about what we do, also about people's rights when it comes to privacy. Uh, so we're really trying to create awareness. And I think that community workers can really be helpful in that uh, because uh, we do deal with a lot of disadvantaged people, people who have different issues, whether that be financial or a range of other issues. All of this involves personal information. So we're trying to get the message out to everyone, including community workers, just about the fact that we have, say, a complaints function. So if uh, an organisation or an agency deals with your personal information, that person does have an option to make a complaint to us um, and also to recognise external dispute resolution schemes. And I think community workers can really play a role in just passing that knowledge back to affected people um, and also in helping them exercise their rights under the Privacy Act. Is there anything that lots of people out in the community think that you do, that you actually don't do that at all? We don't handle neighbourhood disputes where someone has a concern that their neighbour's impinging on their privacy. We also don't handle complaints or investigations about individuals and about lots of small businesses. So we only handle complaints about businesses generally that have an annual turnover of more than $3 million and also any health service provider, so um, any doctors and businesses that trade in personal information. We also handle those of any size, but otherwise we don't handle complaints about small businesses. And how big is the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner? We have about 90 people in our office, with about two-thirds of those working on privacy-related matters. We also receive about 19,000 or so privacy inquiries and 1,931 FOI freedom of information inquiries in the, in the last financial year. We received about 2,947 privacy complaints in the 2017-2018 financial year, um, and these levels of complaints are generally increasing as there's an increasing awareness about what our office does. 
Thank you both so much for explaining a little bit about what the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner does. One of the things that I was really interested in learning more about from you today is what your role is in the, in the Australian consumer credit reporting system. Are you able to explain in broad terms how the Australian credit reporting system works and why it matters? Yes. So the Privacy Act uh, has part three, which covers credit reporting. That's about um, the handling of credit-related information in relation to consumer credit, so not business credit, not commercial credit. So everyone probably knows that credit is an arrangement where you owe a debt to a business and they agree to get paid sometime later. And to help a business or a bank work out your credit risk, they'll ask a credit reporting business for a report on you, which will be will set out your credit history and will have some analysis of the likelihood that you'd be able to repay a debt. So there might be a credit score given to you based on an analysis of your previous payments and any defaults, for example, that you might have had. Yeah, so essentially what the credit reporting system does is that it tries to facilitate the exchange of credit reporting information between credit providers and credit reporting bodies, and they're the basic participants in the credit reporting system. And what it's doing is really allowing credit providers to comply with their responsible lending obligations, it's, but it's also limiting the type of information that can be listed on a credit report to certain kinds of information. And the reason for that is that it also wants to protect the right of privacy that individuals have, and it's an acknowledgement that this type of information is very sensitive. Um, so the credit Credit reporting provisions basically start from the position that it prohibits certain conduct, but then it has a number of exceptions to that conduct in which credit providers and credit reporting bodies can basically exchange personal information. And it's specific kinds of, of personal information that that applies to, and it's all credit-related personal information. The last few years, we've seen a movement away from a negative credit reporting system, which basically entailed listing negative events that are related to someone's credit history on a credit report towards a system where now there are also some positive elements too, such as repayment history, basically with their banks. So yeah, we, we've kind of had a change over the last few years towards a more, uh, I guess, positive, or, or I guess you could say a more comprehensive credit reporting system. I'm gonna try and explain how, how I understand it. And then if you can let me know if I'm, if I'm on the right track. So if I go to a bank or another institution and borrow money off that credit provider, and then I've, I've got that loan, life's good. I then move on and I'm like, oh, I actually need to borrow some more money. And I go to say a different bank to borrow some more money. The second time that I go to borrow that money, they may get a credit report so that they can understand whether they should lend me money and they will go to a credit reporting body to get that report. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, essentially, it's it's probably likely to happen whenever you borrow money. So if you make an application, it's likely that they will, at that time, disclose information to a credit reporting body about the fact that you've made an inquiry. But at the same time, the credit reporting body will probably also disclose information to the credit provider about your credit history. And so would I need to give them the credit provider? Would I need to give them permission so that they can give my information to the credit reporting body? I think they'd be permitted to disclose the information to a credit reporting body without consent. 
just as it's part of their their business to make an assessment of your credit risk by having a regard to your credit history. However, they do need to notify you about what they're going to do with your information. So you would be given notice that as part of making an application for credit, your information will be disclosed to a credit reporting body. And that would be in in some form of notice or in some form of terms and conditions. What are the things that a credit provider can't look at when they're making a decision about whether they're going to give you a loan? The credit report can only include certain defined information. So it's more what they can include rather than what they can't include. So the Privacy Act includes a list of defined types of information that can be disclosed to a credit reporting body. And then algorithms and analysis might be applied to that information and then inferences derived from that information. And then the report will be sent back to the bank and might be shared with other credit providers. The sorts of information that is credit information is just a mentioned repayment history information. So that's um, information about your monthly repayments. So if you've been keeping up to date with your monthly repayments, um, some banks will reflect that on your credit report. Whereas if you might have missed a monthly repayment, that will also be reflected as that overdue amount continues to grow. That will be also reflected on your report. Defaults will be reflected where you've had a repayment that's been overdue for more than 60 days and you've received some notices about that. Court judgments about creditworthiness will be included, your name and identification information. So generally information that relates to your creditworthiness, whereas information as about your race, your gender, your age, those sorts of things, I would say are not really relevant to judgments about creditworthiness and are not part of the information that can be included to make an assessment about the credit risk. And how does the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner fit in to this Australian credit reporting system? Basically, we're the regulator of that system. We also accept complaints about credit reporting issues. We do policy work and and other kinds of work on legislation. We don't actually prepare the legislation, but you know, we're involved in, in that process. I've got a few different scenarios for you and I'll, uh, I'll run the first one by you and then we can look at it together and see what you think. So here is our first case study. A person is unable to meet their repayments on a phone contract. They've recently received a number of letters from a telecommunications provider stating that a payment is overdue. The most recent letter stated that if the overdue payment is not made, the bank may disclose information about the default to one or more credit reporting bodies after 14 days have passed. They are worried that they are going to have a default listed on their consumer credit report and that this will affect their ability to take out credit in the future. What are their options under the Privacy Act? I guess the first thing to point out is that there are a number of preconditions that have to be satisfied before listing a default. So the overdue amount has to be at least 60 days overdue, also has to be an amount over $150, and they have to send out a number of notices. Uh, So there are notice requirements that the credit provider has to comply with, and they have to be sent to the last known resident or last known address could be residential um, but it could also be an email address depending on the usual method of communicating with the consumer. In terms of the hardship aspect the privacy credit reporting code basically has 
some obligations for credit providers around hardship. If a person makes a hardship request, the credit provider isn't able to list a default on that person's credit report in certain situations, and they include where the credit provider is in the process of deciding the hardship request, including if they're waiting for information upon which to rely on in making their decision. They also can't disclose that information if the credit provider decides to refuse the request and they haven't waited at least 14 days after communicating that decision to the consumer. There are certain situations in which they don't have to follow basically what's set out in in that part of the code and, and that basically comes down to where they reasonably believe that the hardship request was made on the same basis as a previous hardship request and that happened in the in the previous four months. And I'll just add to that, if the credit provider then lifts the default and hasn't complied with these obligations around notice or the overdue payment hasn't been overdue for the 60-day period or any of the other requirements, then the individual can make a complaint to the OAIC. They should first take it up with their bank, raise their concerns, and if that those aren't addressed, then the individual can make a complaint to an EDR scheme, so an external dispute resolution scheme. This might be the Australian Financial Complaints Authority or E1, which is the Energy and Water Ombudsman or whatever the relevant EDR scheme is. And if they're not satisfied with the outcome there, they can make a complaint to the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner. In terms of hardship, the Privacy Act only regulates a part of hardship. So Justin was mentioning that there are obligations not to disclose information about a hardship request and also that a default can't be listed if the um, body is in the process of deciding the hardship request. However, there are obligations under the National Consumer Credit um, Protection Act that also regulate hardship and how banks handle hardship requests. And those are overseen by ASIC. So there's information on ASIC's website about hardship um, and some of the the broader obligations that apply to banks in handling hardship requests. Thank you. And we can link to that information on the description of our podcast. You said that generally people can take up their issues with the organisation that they took out the loan from or that they owe money to in the first instance. And then after that, they they could make a complaint to the relevant ombudsman or external dispute resolution scheme. Will will you ever look at complaints before people have gone through those two stages? So I should just add to that also that they can complain to the credit reporting body, so the relevant credit reporting body that holds the credit report. They can complain to them or the credit provider. So was your question, would the OAIC look at something if they haven't gone to the credit provider directly? Yeah, so I guess I'm interested for, say, a community worker's listening. They're like, I've got a client that I'm working with. They're in this situation where they're worried about their credit report. Do they have to go through this step of making the complaint, first of all, to the the credit reporting body or to the credit provider and then to the external dispute resolution scheme and then to you as the ultimate no, they don't have to. I mean, we when we're looking at complaints, there is a discretion under our Act not to look at a complaint if the individual hasn't given the respondent, so in this case the credit provider, a sufficient opportunity to respond to the complaint. So generally we would recommend that they at least go to the credit provider or the credit reporting body about the complaint before coming to us. And I think just practically that's a better option because it, it 
gives them the opportunity to actually resolve the complaint directly. In terms of going to a recognised external dispute resolution scheme before coming to the OAIC, that's not something that we would insist on, but there can be cases where it's just in a practical sense, a good idea to go to an external dispute resolution scheme. I guess, for example, with hardship-related issues, we're not in a position to to deal with the aspects that come under, for example, the National Consumer Credit Protection Act. We can only deal with Privacy Act-related matters. And often in a lot of the complaints that we see um, about different issues, there can be overlapping issues that fall within the jurisdiction of maybe a, an external dispute resolution scheme but that we can't look at, whereas they can also look at some privacy issues. So it's probably a better idea to try and address everything by going to the external dispute resolution scheme and then coming to us if they think that there, there's outstanding privacy issues specifically. And it's now time for our second case study. A person has a default on their consumer credit report. The default relates to an overdue payment on an electricity debt from four years ago when they were a student, and this has affected their ability to gain a home loan. Since then, their circumstances have changed. They are now working full-time and have a stable income. They have heard that more credit providers are adopting comprehensive credit reporting, which we've explained before, and they are wondering what this means and if it might affect their ability to gain a home loan. Well, as we mentioned before, until fairly recently, Australia had a negative credit reporting system which meant that the kinds of information that would be included on your credit report would be defaults and information about when you haven't been able to meet your credit obligations. In 2014, there were changes to the Privacy Act that allowed for a limited amount of additional information to be included on your credit report about your current credit accounts and your repayment history. Only licensed credit providers, which is generally the banks, There might be other lenders. Justin might be able to correct me. Generally, it's only the banks. It's not utility and telco providers that can report this repayment history information. So if an individual has had a default on their account from a number of years ago and they've recently been able to meet their repayment obligations on a monthly basis, it may be that the bank will be able to consider their positive credit history as well as the negative information about the default from from some time ago and this might mean that the individual can now demonstrate that they can afford to meet their payment obligations and they might have a better chance of accessing credit. Conversely, if an individual has had difficulty making their monthly repayments, that might mean that that individual will now have more difficulty accessing credit. So it's not like we can generalise and say that comprehensive credit reporting makes it easier for people to access credit or the converse, that it makes it harder. It it really depends on the situation, is that? Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. I mean, what it does do is provide a bit more transparency. Um, So hopefully lenders are able to have more information on which to base their decisions and to, I guess, comply with responsible lending obligations. I'm now gonna move on to, as, as you may have predicted, another case study. This one is about a person who has had their credit card suspended by a bank and they cannot understand why. When they call their bank, they are told that they have had negative information listed on their credit report, which has resulted in the suspension of their credit facility. The person is not aware of any overdue payments on their account, 
What are their options under the Privacy Act? Not that many people know that they can request a free copy of their credit report from the relevant credit reporting body. There are three main um, credit reporting bodies and they are Experian, Ilion and Equifax. Um, and you can find out their names and contact details on our um, website. So you can request a free copy once a year. You can also request a copy if you've been refused credit within the past 90 days. And if you've asked for a correction to your credit report, then you can also get a copy of your credit report for free if that correction hasn't been made. In terms of the timeframes to get access to your credit report, a credit reporting body has to provide access within a maximum of 10 days of receiving your request. There's also obligations for um, credit providers to provide you with access within a reasonable period. And that's usually within about 30 days. So once you receive your credit report from the credit reporting body, We'd recommend that you look through for anything unfamiliar where you might not recognise an inquiry that's on there or you might not recognise a default or a repayment that you don't think you made. It's possible that there's errors on there that can be corrected. It's also possible, unfortunately, that someone could have engaged in identity theft or identity fraud um, and might, might have made credit inquiries in your name. So if you notice something on your credit report that you don't think is correct, you can make a request to a credit reporting body or to the credit provider to ask that the information be corrected and you'll need to provide um, evidence about why you say it's incorrect and the credit reporting body and credit provider will look into that request and if they're satisfied that the information's incorrect, they need to take steps, uh, reasonable steps to correct the information within 30 days for the credit reporting body and they'll have to send you notice about whether they've corrected the information. And they also, for a credit reporting body, they'll also need to notify banks and others that they might've disclosed that incorrect information to, to let them know that they'll also need to correct the information. If the credit reporting body isn't satisfied that the information's incorrect, they have to send you a notice about that as well and give you reasons for not correcting the information. And again, as we mentioned, if you're not satisfied with the outcome, then that's when you can come to an external dispute resolution scheme or to the OAIC um, to, inquire, to inquire about your rights or to make a complaint. The next one that we wanted to look at was a situation where somebody checks their bank statement, becomes aware that money has been withdrawn from their savings account without their knowledge. What are the options for somebody under the Privacy Act where it actually was somebody else or they're concerned that it was somebody else that took money out of their savings account? There are some practical steps that a person can take um, if they think that they've been a victim of identity fraud. Uh, so steps such as alerting their bank or, or calling the police are obviously, you know, some, some steps that, that you'd want to take right away. If you want more information on the kind of things that you can do if your identity has been stolen, then I'd really recommend looking at the Attorney General's website because they include some really helpful information on there. The OAIC and Legal Aid, I've noticed as well, also have some really useful information about what to do if your identity has been stolen. If you want to speak to someone about, about these kind of things, you can also contact the OAIC's inquiries line for free. There's also ID Care, which is a national identity and cyber support service. They run a free inquiries line as well. 
the OAIC doesn't look into fraud. It's not really something that falls within our jurisdiction, but we can look at the steps taken to secure personal information and also to ensure the, the accuracy of that personal information, which does have a bit of an overlap in these kind of circumstances. One step that a person could take to protect their identity is to uh, request a free copy of their credit report. So they should probably do that fairly early on because by looking at your credit report, you can really work out if there has been any applications under your name to, to say a bank or a credit provider you know, there could be defaults or, or other listings on there. Um, even one thing that we see a lot of is uh, incorrect address information and other personal details, um, which indicate that someone may have been making applications in, in your name. If you look at your credit report and find that there are a number of credit inquiries on there, for example, that you never made any applications to these credit providers, then you could probably contact the various credit providers and speak to them about the fact that you believe there's been identity fraud and try and sort, sort that out with them. So those inquiries can really be just a flag that there may be fraud in relation to different credit providers. You could also make a fraud ban request. So if you look at your credit report and you, you see that there are some listings that you just don't recognize, you could make a fraud ban request to the credit reporting body. They would then put a ban on the report. Um, and basically what that means is that the credit reporting body must not use or disclose the personal information in the credit report without your express written consent. And that lasts while the fraud ban is in place. It lasts for 21 days initially, but it can be extended. And that basically happens where the credit reporting, so if the credit reporting body believes that that person has been a victim of fraud, then they must extend the ban period. There's no specific time frame on how long the ban lasts. I think it really depends on, on the circumstances. There's also no set number of times on how long or how many times it can be extended. In terms of the practical implications of that ban, well, there could be some disadvantages that arise out of that. For example, if you have a fraud ban on your credit report and you make an application to a credit provider, then the credit provider won't be able to check your credit report. So that could impact on your ability to get credit in those situations. But it does prevent that person who may have stolen your identity from adding further defaults and making further inquiries in relation to your credit report? So it should. Essentially what it prevents is the credit reporting body from using or disclosing the information on that file. Doesn't necessarily prevent other credit providers from disclosing information to the credit reporting body, um, but it, it should certainly be a flag to the credit providers that there's an issue in terms of, I guess, disclosing that information. But really what it is, is preventing the credit reporting body from using or disclosing the information on the file. Where there's these multiple credit reporting bodies, would I need to go to each one? Does each one prepare a credit report about me in a slightly different way 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, that that would be a really good idea because different credit providers may use different credit reporting bodies. There's no obligation on them to use all three credit reporting bodies. So it probably is a really good idea to go to uh, all three. So it's a lot of work for an individual if this happens. It is. And I found some interesting stats last night from an Australian Institute of Criminology report that was published at the end of last year. So one in four Australians surveyed reported having been a victim at some point of identity crime in their lives. The refusal of credit was the most common consequence of identity crime, where there was about 35% of people had been refused credit on the basis following identity crime. And there was an average out-of-pocket losses for, of over $3,000 per victim in 2017. And victims of identity crime spent an average of 23 hours repairing the damage caused. So that's sort of, on average, it's a long time trying to fix up things once identity crime has happened. I think that's a really good reason to check your credit report at least every 12 months and if you've been refused credit or, or if a correction hasn't been made when you've requested it. Is the situation where the Privacy Act becomes relevant, where somebody has called up and maybe the bank hasn't followed the procedure to verify the identity of that person, is that when it becomes a privacy issue? Yeah, so it's a it's a privacy issue when you've seen your report and you've seen you've identified something unfamiliar, and then you can go and tell your bank why you think um, that should be corrected. Banks also have obligations under the Privacy Act to take reasonable steps to ensure your information's accurate anyway. So the onus isn't just on the individual to, to go around checking these things, but I think it's a good idea anyway just to, to cover that base. I think it's, it's a good way to be proactive in terms of ensuring that um, decisions that are being made about you are being made based on accurate information. This is, a, this is another case study I'd be really interested in hearing what you think what you think of it. Karina has recently escaped a violent relationship with her ex-husband. Karina asked a credit reporting body for a copy of her consumer credit report and was shocked to see that her credit report had 14 inquiries listed. She suspects that the inquiries relate to fraud perpetrated against her by her ex-husband. The long list of inquiries affect Karina's credit score, making it difficult for her to get credit or utilities. What are Karina's options under the Privacy Act? In a way, it's similar to the previous situation in that there are certain things that practical steps that she could take, contacting the police, alerting uh, the various institutions, uh, getting a copy of her credit report, possibly making a fraud ban request. It sounds like a difficult situation given what's happened with her ex-husband. There may also be other legal issues there that, that don't really fall within uh, the privacy jurisdiction um, and perhaps you know, uh, community legal centre or, or legal aid um, or even financial counsellor, depending on what the issues are, uh, could, could probably assist with that. In terms of the inquiries on the credit report, as I said before, it's probably a good idea to contact the credit providers, um, but at the same time, it may be also a good idea to contact the credit reporting body to maybe pursue those issues with, with both of those entities. Basically, in terms of the obligations of credit providers and credit reporting bodies, it comes down to reasonable steps 
um, for security and for accuracy. There are certain other obligations that apply in terms of um, uh, credit reporting information. But at the same time, I think that these fraud issues are going to need to be addressed with the particular providers, and that may have to be done separately to the inquiries on the credit report. So it's probably a good idea to, to raise it with you know, all of these entities. And I guess if that doesn't assist, they could go to an external dispute resolution scheme or to the OAIC. But once again, given the wider issues involved, it might be better to, to go to an external dispute resolution scheme first if they're not satisfied and, and then come to the OAIC. And as kind of a follow-up to that case study that I've just given, I'll add a little bit to the scenario that there was a default listing on Karina's credit report. With Legal Aid New South Wales help, the debt collector agreed to waive the debt, but they've refused to update the default listing to reflect that the debt is no longer outstanding. The debt collector maintains that in a situation where a debt is waived, they are unable to update the default listing to paid since the debt remains unpaid. Sophie. So when a default has been listed um, on your credit file and you pay back the amount that's overdue, there needs to be a statement added to your credit report that you've paid off that debt. A number of different types of ways of paying off a debt have to be updated as paid. So have to be reflected on your credit report with the words paid. So where a credit provider's agreed to waive a debt, they need to notify the credit reporting body that that debt has been paid, even if it's been waived, and your credit report needs to reflect that. Um, so it needs to say paid rather than that the debt's still outstanding. Once you've made a request to update your credit report to say that it's been paid, it needs to be updated within three business days. As a last question, I guess I'm very interested in the role that community workers can play. You've got a complaints function, you investigate. What role do you think community workers can play with their often quite disadvantaged clients in the community? Would it be appropriate for a community worker to be on the record with a complaint, for example? I guess it's a, a tough one and it's going to depend on the individual. But is, is that something that ever happens where you have a community worker who's on the record and receiving the communications for their yeah, client. yeah, certainly. I mean, we don't really put limits on who can represent another person. We certainly have community workers uh, representing individuals in our complaints process. Um, they can have a lawyer or they can have a community worker or they can have someone else who they want to represent them. Um, generally, our process is set up so that individuals can use our process and make a complaint and not be disadvantaged by not having representation. Um, we do try to make our complaints process accessible to, to anyone, um, regardless of you know, uh, various factors that might influence their ability to make a complaint. And under Section 36 of the Privacy Act, which is the provision that basically facilitates uh, the making of complaints to the Australian Information Commissioner about privacy, um, the staff of the OAIC also have to um, provide appropriate assistance uh, to individuals who want to make a complaint and we have to provide some assistance in assisting them to formulate the complaint. Um, so yeah, but it is set up so that if basically you can have representation um, but you don't need representation. 
And I really liked what you were saying before about how many of these legal issues that we've been talking about have multiple facets and there could be lots of other legal issues that go along with the privacy issue. I guess we're big proponents of the legal health check where community workers are using that to identify just how many different legal issues there are and referring them to Legal Aid New South Wales or to their local community legal centre so they can get assistance to to find out, uh, to get legal advice or to know who would be best place to assist them with that with the particular legal issue to finish up i just wanted to say uh, a huge thank you to both of you for coming in to talk to us about privacy awareness week i think you've given a lot of information about areas which will be very relevant to our listeners in particular what you've talked about with identity theft where there's domestic violence and how what your office does can be part of a process to getting an outcome for a client just by giving the information of the importance of getting a credit reporting body to update information or putting a ban on it. I think all of these, you've given us a lot of really practical steps that people can take in very difficult situations, as well as highlighting the issue of us not being in the dark and knowing about the importance of uh, what we can do to make sure that our information is secure and, and what we can do to correct it where it's incorrect. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the episode, please make sure to share it with your colleagues and let us know if there's a topic that you would like us to do an episode on. We'd love to hear from you. Our contact details are in the episode notes below. Until next time, thanks so much from all of us here at the Community Legal Education Branch at Legal Aid New South Wales.